Hey, hey, Twebs. Go ahead. As we're getting started here, people are shuffling in. I just wanted to, you know, shout out uh, Martin Luther King Day. You know, for those of us that are Americans, a big day. And I, I was talking to my kids about what it meant, and I, I came across this quote. I just wanted to read it here. Uh, quote, I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. This is why right, temporarily defeated, is stronger than evil, triumphant. I just thought that was pretty cool, and I just wanted to honor the day here. So, That's great. May I ask? You're, that's, that's awesome. I, I want to start sharing things like that with my children. I think that's, uh, I think that's an awesome way to, to teach them lessons, especially when it's not coming from dad specifically, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's helpful. They, uh, the ideals come through other vessels better than me, I think. <laughs> exactly. Um, good stuff. Okay, Kyle, so, so let's go ahead and get started. Uh, first of all, so this is Single Stock Spaces episode 11, uh, and we're going to be talking about Green Plains. Uh, if you haven't seen it yet, Kyle posted a wonderful deck and model uh, under under the uh, Twitter handle Covest Select. So again, pull it up uh, if you don't have it. Uh, you know, and I was I was taken aback by how thorough this was. You've clearly done a ton of due diligence. So honored to have you today. Uh, and maybe just give a really high level uh, uh, intro, and then we'll we'll jump right into right into the idea. I, I think you might have some disclaimers as well. Yeah, I'm on as a natural person, um, and so this is for uh, entertainment and discussion purposes only. No, no investment advice, uh, no solicitation. Do your own diligence. Um, I am a fundamental uh, value investor, and uh, my focus. I grew up in credit, and so my my uh, high yield corporate credit, and so my focus has always been on free cash flow, and you know looking at things that inflect with higher free cash flow and, and, you know, can be missed by the market. So just wanted to highlight uh, this one for discussion and um, yeah, see all the disclaimers on all the, on all the uh, applicable materials. Okay, perfect. So one of the things I'd love to do, because this is, this is a highly nuanced story. So I'm sure we'll get deep into the weeds. So I, I want to frame the whole discussion before we get into those weeds with the kind of, you know, 30 second to one minute long elevator pitch. Uh, I, I think, you know, given your great executive summary, you'll have, uh, you'll have that elevator pitch. And so if you could just share that now before we get into the details um, so that everybody kind of is on, is on the same page about where we're going. Sure. So <clears throat> Green Plains uh, is an ethanol company. If you look at the 10K and the historical 10Ks you know, been around for, you know, 15 odd years and they do fine in ethanol, but ethanol is, is, as you might imagine, highly politicized, highly cyclical, capital intensive. It's a challenging business, right? And so the company has been working for years to try and uh, move away from ethanol, fuel ethanol into the transportation markets and into uh, higher uh, valued in markets, secular growing in markets, things that utilize their, their base of assets, which is 11 plants in the Midwest, Iowa, Nebraska, Minnesota, they, these types of states, and their knowledge uh, in terms of, of 
you know, using them from a technological perspective. And they've tried a whole bunch of different things. They, there was some vinegar, there was some uh, cattle, there was just a lot of things that management has been uh, trying to be nimble and move away from fuel ethanol. And what we're seeing here is, I think, uh, of an exceptionally uh, good strategy in the early innings of execution. So I think what you have to do here is really break up the business into its component parts and try and understand each part. Uh, there's four main parts, but today we're only going to talk about two. Uh, and in the deck that I uh, published publicly, uh, that deck focuses on those two. Those two are high-protein cornmeal and renewable corn oil, which is a feedstock into renewable diesel, which is massive if you studied Neste or Darling. I think a lot of people understand Darling now um, in, in ways they didn't three or four years ago. Um, I, I think that's kind of, you know, those are the building blocks of today's presentation, but there's also a renewable dextrose or what the company calls clean sugar. And then there's carbon sequestration, very pure carbon dioxide stream that comes off the stack there at an ethanol plant. So you have a situation where, um, yeah, we, we obviously have some free cash flow coming that we see. And that's even before you get to the renewable dextrose growth and the carbon sequestration growth. So, yeah, just to kind of level set the company, it's a small cap. It's in transition. And a lot of folks just don't look at it. You know, it, it's perceived to be levered, cyclical, commodity intensive, and, you know, a, a whole bunch of reasons to ignore the company that I think uh I think will be changing over the next year plus. That's really helpful. And I think that's a good jumping off point is just, you know, if you're looking at this for the first time, you say, wait a second, how does a refinery just, just, you know, kind of drastically change uh, its outputs. And so that might be a good time to give us a little history lesson, uh, you know, on, on how they are changing those, those outputs and entering new end markets. Yeah. So the answer is technology. So, <clears throat> Um, we've been to the plant. It's, an ethanol plant looks a lot like a, um, uh, a, a brewery for beer or distillery. It, it's big vats, big columns. You, you're bringing in ingredients, dumping them in, using yeast as a, uh, a catalyst to begin a breakdown of the uh, ingredient. In this case, it's very simple. It's just corn. Um, but corn, while seemingly simple, has... It has energy in starch. It has corn oil. It has protein all within the corn. And these, these are attributes that are very valuable uh, to different, you know, feedstock. You know, obviously humans eat corn. It can be made into fuel ethanol. It can be distilled into whiskey. Um, livestock eat it, right? There's a lot of reasons corn is a huge deal in the U.S. and, and other areas such as Brazil. But in, in this case, you have a situation in which technology is transforming the ability to make products from the corn. So you're taking a, a kernel of corn and you're breaking it into further products, uh, further, further breaking it down from what it already is. Um, so to understand a technology, we can just kind of hit, hit that up front. They bought a company called Fluidquip a year ago and Fluidquip is a, uh, wet cornmeal engineers who are adapting the, the company, uh, you know, adapting technology for dry mills. And so they basically came up with a, with a system 
which is mechanical in nature. All this is in the public domain, by the way. Everything we have on every company in the space is public domain. Um, Fluidquip came up with, and there's a bunch of good YouTube videos and things that they've put up over the years uh, that are highly informative on in markets and stuff. But they, but they essentially have created technology to further separate the protein and the corn oil from from the uh, what comes off the back of an ethanol plant. So corn comes in, produce ethanol, and then from there, the Fluidquip systems create a meal, the high-protein corn meal, which has a higher protein percentage uh, than soybean meal and also additional corn oil. So that, that corn oil was always existing in the corn kernel, but it just became uh, extracted with these systems. And so the unit economics on, on these systems are really what just jumps off the page or when we kind of did our work and got uh, into the component parts, that that's what really transforms uh, the idea. So you take a, a, an old line ethanol plant, it's been producing ethanol for a number of years. You add on this high protein corn uh, meal and, and, and uh, oil system, oil separation system on the back of that. And you create, instead of just ethanol, and some carbon dioxide to sell to you know soda manufacturers or whatnot is you know fizz in your drinks. What you create is uh, a high protein cornmeal that can compete not only in the livestock industry, which is somewhat low value relative to other industries, including pet food, which is their first customer set of customers is actually selling it into pet food. We believe it's going into dog food. Uh, we don't know that. That's just our speculation, but it it's definitely. Um, public that they're selling into pet food and they're working up the chain to to aquaculture and so we started breaking down the the nutritional value of the product that was our focus was you know don't even use the word green plains or high protein cornmeal or i think that you know they call it ultra high protein cornmeal whatever it is break down to a nutritionist what the value is to um an aquaculture buyer a pet food um you know, buyer, manufacturer, and or someone who's trying to grow fish for human consumption, aquaculture, right? And the product, the product has exceptionally high value because it has a high amount of a protein. It also has yeast is a yeast is a wonderful ingredient. Brewer's yeast sells for into the aquaculture or um, you know pet food markets. You know, in excess of twelve hundred dollars a ton. Soybean meal is four hundred dollars a ton, right? So the company has um, what's called a J curve. It's in all their public decks. They basically talk about the value, the value of the products going up along this quote J curve as they increase the percentage of protein. But but we think it's actually deeper than that. And the company doesn't talk about this. But when we started, I'm um, talking to animal nutritionists and whatnot. The focus of those folks is actually amino acids. So beyond just protein, and there's some stuff in the deck about different amino acids and whatnot, but the, the uh, crude protein is great, um, but for certain species, and it's highly, highly technical and, and sophisticated, certain species do better with certain types of amino acids and types of proteins. And so as we dug into what the value of this product should be in terms of its nutritional value, um, we just kind of... You know, it kind of opened our eyes to, oh, my gosh, this is truly transformative technology. Seems pretty simple. Seems too good to be true. But nutritionists are valuing it as such. And I would say that, 
you know, Green Plains is not the only company that's pursuing stuff like this. Um, the Andersons has a JV that's working on high protein cornmeal. It's 50% high pro. Um, there's a number of other folks who are talking about um, high pro or looking at high pro. And a number of ethanol plants had actually installed this technology before Green Plains kind of went uh, full in. The uh, upper Midwest grain producers in, in Wisconsin, Badger Ethanol also in Wisconsin, and then Flint Hills, which at the time was under the uh, the uh, ownership of Coke, Coke Industries, that uh, they've since divested that uh, fuel um, business, trying to dive, divest away from, as, as we understand it, um, uh, fuel transportation type things. But um, so there was a number of plants where this has gone up. It's not just Green Plains, a number of others in, in the industry. But we think Green Plains uh, not only is, is you know, all in on this strategy, bought Fluidquip, which is, we think, the best technology in the market. But they also have a partnership with Novozymes um, for, uh, for uh, biological enhancements, you know, uh, of the product different yeasts can be used on the breakdown of the ethanol etc so that the j curve that the, that the company's talking about and some of the numbers that todd becker the ceo has used in public conference calls and you know sort of aspirational figures th that's not even in our model but we do think it's possible from a nutritional standpoint um certainly the question is commercialization and what will the market accept so I, I threw a lot at you, but let me take a little pause. Yeah, so let me pursue two two follow ups uh, to that to that line of thinking. First, is it fair to assume that over? And I know these things don't happen overnight. So let's say I don't know a three to seven year time frame, the entire U.S. ethanol industry will pursue some variation of this MSC technology. That's my first part of the question, and the second is, if yes. What is the impact on, let's say, the global market for really the two big EBITDA generators in your model, which are the meal and the corn oil? Yeah, so let's do corn meal first, because the oil um, used to go into like livestock as food, as a, as a caloric type thing. But now it goes into renewable diesel. Um, that's a completely separate topic. And that's actually how we found this company. We'd spent five years learning Darling and Neste, like the back of our hand. Um, that's crazy, crazy growth markets. Um, we can come back to that. But let's just focus on high protein um, per year, your, the first part of your question. So the, the, the question is, three to seven year time frame, you know, what happens if every ethanol plant in the U.S. Uh, converts? Um, the answer is it barely makes a dent in the global protein market. Uh, the global protein market is exceptionally deep and wide, and you know a number number of vegetable proteins and animal proteins are used both for human consumption <clears throat> uh, and also animal consumption. And specifically, um, these meals like soybean meal um, and corn gluten meal, which is sixty percent protein. These things have been around forever, and they are building blocks of the global protein. Uh, economy but but protein if you flip in the uh in the deck that i don't know if folks have it open or just jot down you know what we're kind of talking about slide 29 speaks to um the kagers of protein and protein ingredients and these are usda world protein reports um the big guys like 
uh, ADM, like what are they thinking and, you know, different, uh, different industry sources. Protein is a mid single digit to high single digit growth, probably mid single digit if we're being, you know, conservative growth market and all the, all the ethanol plants in the U S flipping would be like one year's growth in the global protein market. So it's a drop in a bucket. Um, and I do think that over three to seven years, there, there should be additional technology that, that, but this is, this is not a, a phone app, right? This is, it's $40 million for um, one of these plants to go into a hundred million gallon, which is, you know, an average ethanol plant, it's $40 million. A lot of these companies, uh, you know, local co-op or grain producers or whatnot, a lot of these guys don't have great balance sheets. So I don't think everyone's going to be racing right out of the gate to install one. There's also the the, the concept of commercialization. Yes, sure, the, the nutritional value is exceptionally high for these products, but you still have to commercialize it. You still have to um, quality control it, test it, and package it in such a way that folks can actually use. Um, and so Green Plains is leading on that too. And we think there's an opportunity, and this is not in the deck either, for them to you know brand it, lead on it, quality assurance, quality control it, and then make sure it's specced in properly to pet food. You know, you got to get specced into a label to get product into pet food, or, or you know, sold into with proper amino acid profile into aquaculture. You know, soybean meal, which is a big part of fish food, is actually. Um, Soy does not do well in the gut of a fish, but corn does. But there are issues beyond the time frame of this uh, spaces. There are issues with using too much uh, high protein cornmeal, um, which we can get into offline if helpful. So there, there's definitely a market position, but the commercialization is, you know, very very early. Even though the uh, the product profile, and the nutritional value is definitively there. And so, and obviously where, what I'm getting at is, you know, if I say what's the, what's the key assumption in the model, it's probably the $500 per ton uh, cornmeal assumption in 24. Could you give us a sense of, you know, what, what does that $500 per ton look like? I mean, it's not a commodity market that many on the call will understand. Has it ranged from yeah. 300 to 800 or has it ranged from 450 to 550? Can you just give a little bit, a little sense of, uh, you know, why, maybe just defend that $500 uh, assumption because it's a big one. For sure. And the company has not published that number. Okay. I think they're going to start publishing it later this year. Um, but what they have talked about is, is premium to soybean meal. Soybean meal is widely quoted. It's, uh, heck, even you can see it, <laughs> the price of it when you're, you know, I see it when I'm at the gym uh, running on a treadmill at lunch, right? It, soybean meal is this giant, vast, uh, amounts of volume quantity globally known product, right? And it has a certain price and, and, High protein cornmeal will be a displacement for that. It'll also be displacement for things like corn gluten meal. Well, uh, which trades at, you know, six, seven hundred dollars a ton, higher protein, 60% plus type protein. But soybean meal today is in and around 400. So our assumption of in and around 500 is is 100 over uh, soybean meal. You know, obviously soybean meal will trade up and down a lot. As, as every commodity will. But we think we think the 500 is relatively conservative because it doesn't leave a lot of room for technological improvement, higher percentage of, of protein 
type product as well as the stuff they're doing with Novozymes, innovating using you know better um, or more specific yeasts. I mean, they have eleven facilities plus one JV. They could theoretically make twelve different products, right? And if they partner with other ethanol firms over time, you could see uh, you know four or five plants making product X five or six plants making product Y, et cetera. So, you know, at a hundred dollars over, we think that's relatively uh, conservative. Um, I would say that um, even if it's not a hundred over, even if it's say 50 over or 25 over what you are, what you are creating is this is a new product. Okay. So what was this stuff being sold at? If you, if you pull up the single plant unit economics slide, it's slide 18 to model. I, I think, Twebs, you posted um, yeah. maybe a picture of it. Yeah, exactly. Just just flip over uh, for those on the line. Just, just flip over, uh, swipe swipe through the tweets on the top, and you'll, you'll find what Kyle's referring to. So what you're seeing is there, there's a product called dried distiller's greens. So what comes off the back of an ethanol plant um, is this sort of this yellow sort of like gooey slop, right? They call it silage in the industry. And you can take that and you can dry it um, and you can feed it to cattle. That's basically what dried distiller's grains is. And it has a certain amount of protein, it has a certain amount of, um, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of like husk and different things, um, not husk, but just uh, fibrous type things that the cows because of multiple stomachs uh, can actually digest into energy. So they, they sell it into there. All you're doing is you're, you're, you're taking and you're extracting a lot more of the protein from that, from that silage and you're extracting into this new product. So if you see there's more oil comes off the stream, this new high protein feed comes off the stream and less pounds of dried distillers grains comes out net net. You're not creating any products or, Essentially, you know, your volume's not going up, your volume's not going down. You're just further um, specifying the nutritional aspects of each product and creating a product called high-protein cornmeal that has a value from a protein perspective much higher than dried distiller's grains. So that's the delta. You're taking something that in this in this um, example, just a simple unit example that we came up with as priced at 115 and you're selling it for 500 so it's more than triple the price that's the delta um is, is a new product with triple the price of, of of essentially the same inputs right that that's the delta in um in in the corn hey. meal hey kyle i'm really enjoying this pitch and i wanted to drill down on the pricing uh just as a follow-up if you don't mind sure when you look at the soybean meal producers do you think they're earning well above their cost of production right now? Are they in like a, a super cycle or anything like that? Like a lot of the other commodity, um, a lot of the other commodities right now, because if it's going to be a premium to soybean meal, I was just curious on your thoughts on the, on the soybean cycle. Um, if that makes any sense. It, yeah. Yeah. So the big drivers of soybean is, uh, Obviously, that's a human food, um, so is corn. Uh, but the human food is relatively stable. The delta in the soybean market is soybean oil is the swing ingredient into the production of renewable diesel, which I could, you know, we could totally go off the rails for a number of hours discussing that. 
market, why it exists, the depth, where it's going. That is unequivocally a double-digit growth market for the next decade. Uh, it's an incredible market, an incredible product, really decarbonizes uh, the transportation industry in a, in a way that um, until we get to hydrogen fuel cells or whatnot, and that's, you know, pick your time frame in, in the future, uh, low carbon fuel standards mandate essentially renewable diesel. And so soybean oil will be the swing factor in terms of volumes, like meeting that demand, if you will. Um, so there is a certain amount of concern that over the next five years, soybean uh meal there's gonna be a lot more soybean meal on the market because folks are producing to 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 make oil and meal goes to the livestock market as as an offtake the the reality is that there's not a lot of excess soy crush facility in fact you know depending on who you talk to the u.s itself is short like 10 to 15 soy crushing plants so you know it is something to keep an eye on longer term but to answer your question directly, no, I don't think soybeans are in a, you know, a, a crazy upcycle that are that is more uh, commodity related. It, it all has to do with the low-carbon fuel standards, the renewable diesel markets, but cer- certainly a risk. Kyle, if I look if I look at the unit economic slide again, if I wanted to poke a hole in it, it, it might not even be on the incrementals. It might be that something goes sideways or south with ethanol. Yeah. Is there, is there any reason to believe, you know, because ethanol has swung. I mean, it's been, you know, yeah. I don't know, 40 cents a gallon positive at times, but it's been, you know, 25 cents a gallon negative. Yeah. Is there, any, is there is, you know, walk through, walk through why ethanol might not, you know, take, take some of the bite out of, out of the jump in economics from, from kind of the other, the, the other transformations? Sure. Um, the answer is the, and, and when you walk through the facility, this is codified crystal clear. The ethanol plants are up and running and, and they're running profitably in on average. Green Plains is in the top quartile of profitability on a per plant basis. So we can get into ethanol as a political construct or whatnot later if you guys want. But for this for this uh, example, we're showing it at, at zero profit, okay? From that plant, you literally leave the ethanol plant, you walk, now there's a, there's a pipe over your head that's piping the silage over into the MSC system. You open another door, you go into a two-story building, and that is the MSC high-protein cornmeal and, and oil separation system as this giant new facility. Um, and so what we're talking about or what is transformational about this is on the back end of the ethanol plant and would have nothing to do with the ethanol economics or whatnot. Now, we get the, it's ethanol, I hate ethanol, it's a political construct. We get that. And so to sort of head that off, we just took and said, okay, ethanol makes no money. Ethanol makes zero EBITDA. And that's what we ran in our model. Um, not just in the single plant economic slide, but in the in the financial model for 2024. Now, we think that's overly conservative. Certainly, something could come up from left field and and derail that, but that's a different conversation. Um, I, I think the probability of that is very low, but certainly it exists. So, d- does that answer the question? No, for sure. And it's interesting. 
I, I believe the stock, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the last couple of weeks has been weak on some political drama around ethanol. And so maybe what I'm uncovering there is just the wrong focus on this stock. Let, let, let's talk about that angle. So historically, this company probably was the best ethanol proxy, right? Like there are other companies that have ethanol or do certain, they do ethanol plus other things. But if hedge funds wanted to express a view on ethanol, this was a very, very good way to do it. And the renewable fuel standards and the renewable volume uh, mandate, RVO, are very complex and very confusing and very easy to be uh, essentially um, to get to get confused, right? So, you know, what does that mean? What does it mean that the RVO is 15 billion gallons? You know, who creates the RIN? Who who gets the RIN? Etc. All that is essentially noise um, because uh, Green Plains is the producer of the product, but most of these um, low carbon mandates are at the blender level, and so the obligations fall to the blender, which are typically the, um, the oil and gas companies or distribution companies. So yeah, every time there's news about an RVO, Green Plains trades down, but that fundamentally does not affect anything related to my model uh, with respect to the profitability and, and what the profitability is going to be in say 2024 on. This is probably a dumb question, but is there any way for this industry given that the focus is shifting to take, you know, uh, a billion gallons of, of ethanol production offline, or can you essentially not run the process unless ethanol is being produced? That's a great question. Um, <clears throat> the answer is corn is, uh, I should know this number, 70 to 75% starch or, or carbohydrate. Okay. So what do you make with that starch or carbohydrate, right? kind of back to what I was saying earlier, you can make fuel ethanol, you can make uh, drinking alcohol, you can make specialty alcohol, uh, you can make a whole bunch of different products. You can also make, and this is new technology that's that's not been commercialized yet, but, but we think it could be transformational, say in 2024 or later. You can make <clears throat> something called renewable dextrose. Um, and dextrose, so... I know this is well beyond the scope of this spaces, but but dextrose is it, that's a product that currently exists in the market, and it's historically been made by corn wet mills. Corn wet mills are are far more expensive to build, but they're used predominantly to produce human food or human food type at, um, products. But with the reduction of high fructose corn syrup and a number of other you know corn related products. Those facilities, they don't make them anymore. They're super expensive and they don't earn reasonable economics. So, th so the, this renewable dextrose is something that the market uh, would like to use. Um, and if you go and you go into the company's um, deck, they have a whole bunch of different growth rates and whatnot from industry sources on that. They believe they have the technology to um, scale up this, this renewable um, dextrose or glucose type thing through through technological innovation and take the carbohydrate, which is currently being used in the manufacture of uh, fuel ethanol and create renewable dextrose. And that does all sorts of amazing things. The return on capital are, is really, really good. 
like 60, I think we have 65, 70% in our model. It is used in all sorts of different industries, like polymers, construction, f- flavors and fragrances, especially coatings, et cetera. So it's a really diverse market. Um, and, and it gets you completely out of the fuel ethanol market. So, you know, is that going to happen in the next two to three years? No, definitely not. But it's certainly possible that in, say, 2026 or 2027 that the company makes no fuel ethanol. And then, you know, pick pick your multiple um, on that cash flow, right? So there, there's a lot of uh, a lot of attributes down the road. And none of that's in the model either. Right. It, it, it's it's very interesting to me just because the ethanol story over time has been one of booms and busts. And if there actually is a path to get to rationalize supply, it's probably the most conservative assumption in your model is this last line that has ethanol, uh, ethanol plus Green Plains partners, basically yeah. just funding corporate, right? So <laughs> you basically got no EBITDA from ethanol. There's another um, aspect that... <clears throat> is sort of all circular, but ethanol has a carbon intensity in and around 70 right now, according, you know, let's just use Valero's numbers to kind of level set since they do both renewable diesel and ethanol with carbon sequestration that drops to like 40 and it, that that's 40% of the carbon intensity of, of, uh, fossil-based gasoline, right? So that is something that is dramatic in terms of low-carbon fuel standards. And, it, you know, Western Europe and North America have gone hard towards low-carbon fuel standards, and I believe that's a secular uh, transition. So there's, you know, it could even be possible that fuel ethanol rises in value because it meets a low-carbon fuel mandate um, in a way that's readily accessible by our current transportation infrastructure. There's a lot of value there um, and potential too. Um, and, you know, just to, just to double back on, on corn oil, um, we think the high protein stuff is worth more than the current stock price. We think uh, ultimately corn oil is worth about $15 a share. And that it's really important to, to realize that it is a, it is a feedstock into renewable diesel Okay, it's one of the three main feedstocks, the lowest carbon intensity feedstocks, the other two being um, animal fat and used cooking oil. And the reason you hear more about animal fat and used cooking oil are that's what Darling owns. And so Darling as a vertically integrated um, renewable diesel manufacturer. That's incredible. That is an incredible business. And there's a reason the stock went from you know, 15 to 70, wherever it is today, 65, 70, is that vertical integration and the the maturation of uh, the low carbon fuel standards in the renewable diesel markets. You know, it's possible, and Todd's been talking about, Todd Becker, the CEO, has been talking about this, a long-term corn oil offtake agreement at, at much higher numbers than what I'm putting in the deck here, or potentially even splitting economics with the renewable diesel producer you know renewable diesel everybody wants to talk about it and the dirty little secret is where is the feedstock going to come from right so you have you know micro caps like vertex energy talking about it to the biggest guy in the space nesty nesty is going across the entire globe just absolutely gobbling up feedstock supply because it's 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 a feedstock game you can't create more feedstock other than soybean oil and soybean oil has a ci of 45 
as opposed to the others in, in the low 30s. So it's material difference in economics to a uh, renewable diesel gallon. The unit economics at the gallon level is far higher for someone producing with uh, corn oil. And that's just not something that's well understood by the market. And we think that's going to change here. You know, uh, Diamond Green uh, 2 just came up down in the Gulf, and they're going to start taking a, a ton of, of feedstock. I know there's the hurricane and a bunch of noise around that. And there's always noise on feedstock prices. But the point is understanding the value of corn oil. Todd Becker understands it. That's for darn sure. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think the folks have really put two and two together in terms of the next leg on renewable diesel and, and, and the feedstock value, which – you know, we think it's transformative here too. And I don't know, Neste, when you say, uh, you know, kind of going around the world and taking all the feedstock, are they actually purchasing companies or just signing oh, yeah. long-term? Oh yeah. Okay. It's, it's off-take agreements. It's, it's, for example, I live in Chicago, right? Up, up and down the Midwest, they've been buying tanks and barges and long-term off-take agreements. They've been doing it in, in, uh, in Asia, South America, like it's a global run on on uh, on feedstock, right? I mean, Darling, for instance, just bought a private manufacturer. There's two. Well, now there's one big private manufacturer, but the big one out in California is called Baker Commodities. But on the East Coast, um, Valley Proteins that was kind of the you know big big deal in terms of uh, feedstock. Like, why would Darling drop a billion dollars on this? Well, more feedstock security of supply. These things are transformative in renewable diesel. Right, like I see a lot on like um, I don't want to call anyone out. I see I see a lot of folks talking about other names that are all bringing up plants or converting plants in you know areas that don't have feedstock, and you just kind of scratch your head and say, okay, you're going to run on bean oil, and you're going to run your economics on bean oil. Well, you're now exposed to um, soybean prices that move a lot and you just don't have that security of supply. You are the marginal producer. That's not my game. I don't want to be the marginal producer in commodity land. I want to be at the right point on the cost curve. And Green Plains is a low-cost provider of ethanol, which makes it a low-cost provider of corn oil because corn oil is, and you can see it in the slides, is one of the top three ingredients, right? So we're kind of like just getting started on the value of corn oil and where that's going to be over time. You know, Todd Becker and the company has been very public about they've been approached for offtake agreements, like five year type plus type things um, for years for 100 percent of their corn oil. And they said no. And further, what you're doing in terms of there's about one point eight pounds of corn oil per, per bushel of corn. And historically, the, the industry has been extracting about 0.8 pounds. And that's going up to 1.2. And there's been some talk recently about 1.3. We think 1.2 is you know, very, very easy. And you can see it when you walk the plant. Like you see the corn oil coming off in the, in, in the, in the quote-unquote ethanol plant. Then you see it's a big centrifuge. There's a picture of it in the back of the deck too. It's, it's essentially you take the silage and they spin it really fast and they separate, separate out the oil. And out of this machine comes corn oil too. So the volumes of corn oil is going up 50% as they get, as they get these, uh, these, these uh, installations um, stood up, right? So the volume's going up 50% on stuff we already have. We're already paying for the inputs. Not we, but Green Plains, you know? So you have a situation where 
volume's going up 50%, and we think the price is going up over time. But even if not, the volume's going up 50%. This, this is a super valuable commodity. So that's kind of how we think about corn oil to a certain extent. Got it. So I want to jump to your the slide is the slide is called green plains business overview and it's it's where you talk about 24 ebitda by segment and to help value the stock i want to yep. go down that path um and, and while you're going there i do just a quick you know part of the power of twitter spaces is, is, is just questions from the crowd so uh you know as kyle starts going down that path i really would love to encourage uh questions from the group yeah, absolutely. Um, and anything- oh, and, and by the way, this sorry, this um, so this is the this is a slide uh, with the tweet that says post transformation. Here's what a potential valuation scenario could look like if you want to pull it up on your screen. Yeah, so we so we get to um, EBITDA just a level set. We get to EBITDA of four hundred sixty five million. Um, the street. The crazy thing about this name is the street gets this one. Uh, the street is at for 24, an average of 425. That's a, an amalgamation of Goldman, Jeffries, Roth, Stevens, and um, Truist. Uh, not used to the that, truth. That, so does that put the stock on six times 24 or a little bit less? That puts the stock at four times street consensus 24. Uh, current okay. price, but I'm I'm converting to converts, um, f- uh, to show full dilution because I obviously my quote unquote target price is much higher, so I want to capture the full dilution, and that's why I convert to converts. But yeah, so the street average is for this year twenty two is two twenty six, then it jumps to three fifty nine, and then it jumps to four twenty five. So we're at four sixty five. We're not necessarily that crazy off the street. We're just saying, hey, look, this is real cash. These are other than clean sugar, um, which is really, really close to full commercialization. Hypro and corn oil are unequivocally uh, producing. They're already producing. It's not just green plants. There are other plants that are doing it. This is, you know, there are certain assumptions and you can see them all in the model. Play with it as you want. But these things are up. And the reason I chose 2024 is just to say, hey, this is when the full footprint is done, right? So we understand the unit economic uh, um, unit economics are stellar at the plant level. It's essentially a 60% return on uh, incremental capital here. Um, and these are the numbers that you're getting on a transformational basis. This is with ethanol at zero and most importantly, nothing on carbon sequestration okay so you know we kind of broke it down on a per share basis high pro is 42 corn oil is 15 uh clean sugar what i think they should call renewable dextrose is six dollars per share that's just one plant converted over we think it's going to be more but we don't think it's going to be more in 2024 2025 that's really kind of like a back half of the decade type thing so you know do with that what you will um, and then especially alcohol, a- agribusiness, they have the Green Plains Partners, which is this uh, logistics, uh, it was kind of like the last MLP dropped down back in the day when people cared about stuff like that. 98% of what Green Plains Partners does is move stuff for Green Plains. So it's a bit of a, 
it's not financial engineering. It's just sort of a, an amal- a historical amalgamation, let's call it. So, but yeah, so you, you basically get to 465 million. 465 million would imply a 3.65, uh, 3.6 times multiple EBITDA on, on, um, on the current EV. Uh, and, you know, I think, I don't think that's the right number. Um, so we think as they prove out the cash flow, uh, away we go. That's sort of a, a sort of our working thesis. Gary, you have your digital hand raised. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to be polite. Uh, Kyle, I really like this idea. Um, I have a couple of questions for you, if you don't mind. The um, fluid quip future looks very bright. Why do you think the management team wanted to sell the business? I think I might know why, but I'm just curious to hear what you think. And then I doubt this is the first time you've pitched this. Like, what are you getting in terms of pushback on this? It seems incredibly compelling. So I'm just curious what, what others might not like about this story. Thanks. Yeah, no problem. So I haven't spoken to the fluid quip guys. Um, we were sort of like deep in diligence um, and had planned to, to speak with them when they were acquired by green planes. So then, you know, public, you can't just go talk to these guys anymore. Um, there was for those, and this, uh, there's transcript on Bloomberg and cap IQ and whatnot. Uh, fluid quip, Osprey, uh, which helped do the deal. And green planes did a, a podcast, which, which there's a transcript for roughly 12 months ago. And they laid out all this stuff. Um, including why they essentially bought it, bought fluid quip for the clean sugar technology. They have the best high pro and corn oil technology. That's true. But others have that technology per my comment to your previous question. That's, that's going to go in industry standard. Green Plains has Novozymes. It's the best, but it is in an in industry transformation, but fluid quip has the only guys working on the clean sugar stuff. So if you hear Todd Becker in that interview, that podcast, it's on the Fluidquip website too. He talks about buying Fluidquip for um, clean sugar. Um, that's why he bought it. He got, quote, uh, high pro for free or, or some some version thereof. Uh, I don't have the quote in front of me, but, but that's what they're keying on. That's what they're focusing on. Um, in terms of pushback, the biggest, well, first of all, it's incredibly complex, right? It's a pain in the ass to understand the model. And you got to deal with pet food is different than aquaculture, is different than livestock, is different than renewable diesel. You know, this stuff makes your head spin. We came at it from a perspective of knowing renewable diesel um, pretty well, like really well. And so from there, it was go talk to a bunch of people about pet food and aqua and just talk about nutritional value and see if, you know, the green plains plan as laid out was just like smoking mares, like some ESG, like BS, you know? And then it's like, Oh no, it's not like, this is the value is there. If they can commercialize and if they can put it up, then they, you know, they needed a little capital. They raised some capital. Um, but, you know, the company has been resilient, right? Like Todd is a fighter in a good way, right? Like he's, he's been trying to get this company on a secular growth path for a while. And I think he's, I think he's 
more or less done it, but so many guys don't even look at it like, oh, ethanol, like it's terrible. It's political risk, you know. Well, political risk kind of reminds me of, um, I've never <laughs> tell this story if I was uh, talking, but hey, I'm just a guy sitting here in a Nirvana t-shirt talking about a company. Uh, it's kind of like that meme where it's the bell curve and it's uh, like the guys in the middle are overthinking it and the guys who maybe are a little bit slower, like Iowa sets presidential, you know. I, Iowa is the corn, corn belt, right? Like presidential vote 2024 is coming up soon. Like nobody's going to mess with ethanol. Like they're just not. Like like if, if that's where people want to go down and get pushed back, like, okay, fine. Like, fine. Like next. Politicians aren't going to destroy fuel ethanol in 2024. They're just not going to do it. There's going to be a lot of noise, but they won't fundamentally destroy um, the market. That, that makes sense. So you're comfortable with the the political angle on ethanol. If I could put words in your mouth, it sounds like they simply have to execute on this transformation and adding the capacity and the end markets are actually there. There's no risk to uh, having to find customers to buy these products or anything like that. It's really just down to, to executing on, on this transformation. Is that right? Yes, I would agree with that. I would say, you know, the, the commercialization of certain products, like the newer, um, the, the, the different sort of yeasts into, into aquaculture and into the pet food market, you know, cat food would be different than dog food, it'd be different than aquaculture, et cetera. There is commercialization, quote, risk there. They're, they're working on it. I think they're going to get there, but that's the only sort of risk that, you know, corn oil is just corn oil. It sells into renewable diesel. That That's all pretty straightforward. Um even renewable dextrose, that product already exists. It's being made by uh, the wet mills instead of the dry mills. Um, but yeah, by and large, uh, I agree with the comments. Thank you. So Kyle, I'll stop so talking, Kyle, Mike. Kyle, you're you're conservative, free cash flow guy by nature, and so you have not brought up carbon sequestration, um, but I'm going to force you to do so uh, because I almost wonder if heading down that path is one of the best things that can happen for the stock, even though it's much easier for you to pitch your case on the free cash flow generated from meal and corn oil. But, you know, potentially a catalyst in the stock could be starting to make real inroads towards sequestration. So, so can we talk about that briefly? Absolutely. Um, it was funny when we first, uh, <laughs> when we headed out and met with the company, um, it was before 45Q had been uh, put into law. And I asked them what they were thinking on carbon sequestration. And they just kind of acted like nothing was going on. Three weeks later, giant press release about exactly what they're going to do, which has transformational value, in my opinion. Um, so essentially, okay, ethanol is the cleanest way to capture carbon dioxide and sequester that from release into the atmosphere. Why is that? Well, it has to do with the simplicity of an ethanol plant. Ethanol plants are really, really simple, right? Corn in, yeast in, heat in, ethanol out, right? But what the yeast does is it breaks down that starch into what will ultimately become fuel ethanol uh, and it creates carbon dioxide. Now that carbon dioxide, a lot of it is sold um, I brought up the example of 
you know, uh, soda drinks, fountain drinks, um, that's uh, carbon dioxide, right? So there are products for it, but there are also a lot of ethanol plants that just bleed that into the atmosphere. Now you might say, okay, hey, that's, that's uh, not helpful from a environmental perspective. That's true. That's why people are working on carbon sequestration, right? But the, the carbon intensity of ethanol is 70. So it is 30% better than fossil fuel to start. If you sequester that, it goes down to 40, et cetera. So w- what's going to happen is now that 45Q is law, okay, and it's not a political football, it became law under the previous administration. The current administration is trying to up the price for it, which is not in our math at all. But but 45Q is essentially trying to create a price of carbon such that it incentivizes folks to um, not release it into the atmosphere, right? You can tax it like the Europeans, or you can incentivize the folks to not release it. So because carbon dioxide is such a pure uh, stream at an ethanol plant, according to, you know, Morgan Stanley has a great report on this for those who have access. It has to do with the purity of the carbon dioxide and it's at one place in the plant and therefore it is by far the cheapest. I, I clipped a couple, uh, uh, don't tell Morgan Stanley, I guess I clipped a couple um, uh, charts from there, I think on page 70, um, 71 about of, of the deck of, of why it's so, uh, it's a great source of carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide, basically, if, it, if it's not sequestered from an ethanol plant, it's not going to be sequestered from anywhere else because it's more expensive to do it on every single other uh, type of a plant, maybe ammonia. Um, But essentially you have a situation where you have to sequester it in geologic storage. Um, That can be done on site in certain facilities like um, Decatur, Illinois. ADM has been working with the Department of Energy for over 10 years. They finally got it right in 2017. The Department of Energy kind of used that knowledge that they that they um and and the department of energy funded it right this has been something that's been over 10 years of project and um you the the government used that to inform 45q in terms of what the statutes are and and why the price is what it is etc so you have a situation which ethanol um is either going to put it in the ground direct inject on geologic storage uh all uh all run by the EPA and the Department of Energy, or they're going to put it in pipelines um, that have been yet to be built, and it's a giant political football. But, you know, assign your probability on the pipelines getting built. Um, there's a number of pipelines. Valero's got one that they publicly talk about. Uh, and then there's the Summit Carbon Pipeline, which is run by uh, Summit, which is an ag player. Um, Green Plains is the sort of the uh, cornerstone in terms of they committed all their, they were the first mover on committing their uh, carbon uh, into the pipeline. So yeah, that's gets complicated and, and it is cash flow that it'd be not in 2024, um, but it, it exceptional value there. You just got to wait a little bit longer. Seems this management team is not terrible with laying out long range vision, however. Yeah, no, I, I think I think Todd, um, like I said before, he, he's a fighter in, in a good way. Like he he has he has got a vision here. We'll see if they execute, but he's got a vision to radically transform this business away from being a fuel ethanol player. And if they are going to make fuel ethanol, they're going to be making it at a carbon intensity of forty 
instead of 70 and they're going to be selling it into the low carbon fuel standards markets right so he's created through the use of technology a lot of optionality uh for cash flow generation really starting now right um with with the cornmeal but certainly by 2024 all this kind of deployed and I think it'll be understood by the market um, a little bit more. So, so quick one for me. What and and I looked at you know you did some work on the downside case as well. And it, to be honest, it's not that far south from where the stock is trading right now. Why is the stock sitting here at this price? And is it actually potentially causing a risk that somebody like I don't know Neste comes in, does a low premium deal and. You know, you can't realize that $80, $90 just because, you know, this thing becomes a target at 40 I, I haven't had conversations with them about that, but I, I, think, I think there's enough folks um, paying attention that would not let a take under happen. Um, it's always a risk. Uh, th- let's level set. This is a hedge fund hotel, right? Like there's been a lot of guys talking about it, including the street, right? Like if you talk it, a year ago, it was like Roth and Jeffries and Hallam were probably the only Adam Samuelson at, at Goldman might've been on this one. I, I don't really know. We mostly kind of do our own work. We spot check with the street, but I mean, in the last year, you know, Truist has come out, Stevens, uh, BMO. I can't remember when they picked up or not. Um, but there's there's a lot of folks that are talking about it. And then, you know, it kind of, it definitely, the stock price peaked when they were talking the most about carbon, kind of in the fall, right? But then you know, build back better, which increases, there's a rider that increases the 45 Q uh, price, which is a pure drop down hundred percent incremental EBITDA margin for, for ethanol players. Um, that's, you know, that stock where it's at and, and the company spent the last in December when they're on the road at public shows and whatnot, they were talking more about the clean sugar, what I call renewable dextrose as opposed to carbon. So I think a lot of the, uh, folks who were trading it based on carbon kind of um, took off. And then back, here we go. Ethanol margins are coming down. All of a sudden, the stock's down, whatever, 25%. Doesn't fundamentally change anything of what I'm looking at. Um, no no giant risks from my vantage point. But, hey, that's what makes markets. Kingdom, you've asked to speak. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Um, hey, so Kyle, I'll just uh, be upfront. I'm uh, I've been following Alto Ingredients a lot more closely in this space. Who's pursuing a similar transition? Um, did, I've noticed you mentioned them a couple times in this deck, but you didn't um, talk too specifically about the efforts they're making. Um, do you have any strong opinion there uh, in terms of kind of the way they're going with the Copro Max system versus Fluidquip? Yeah. So I, look, I think a lot of these 50 Pro systems are going to work, right? at value of 50 pro and if they can mechanically go further than the value yeah it is higher than soybean meal right i think with alto i think the um and i'm you know uh, not involved there 
uh, not paying as close of attention. But there's a balance sheet issue. There's also um, they went headlong and especially alcohol kind of beginning of COVID. And so there, I think there's more variability in, in the margins. Um, and all ethanol players made flipped over and, and tried to make um, specialty alcohol, including green plants. Okay, so it's not a comment on that. But no, I think that there's a lot going on. They've got that interesting JV down in Southern Illinois. That, that there's a lot there. Um, it, it, in terms of the scale that I'm looking at, uh, Green Plains is a lot bigger. It, it's just the one that I've been focusing on. No, for sure. Thanks. That's helpful. Uh, I think that, yeah, the specialty focus is one of their key differentiators. And, you know, they've been talking about doing the proteins too and the carbon capture. So I've just seen a lot of the same pieces there. And yeah. I mean, it's trade, you know, the, like you said, the capacity there is like 400 and some million gallons between the specialty and the, although it just came under slightly under because they sold a plant. Um, but at the same time, they've also, you know, they're doing a lot more specialty in relation to uh, their total capacity and doing the same protein stuff. So I was curious if you had any other thoughts on them. So thank you. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think especially the trend recently has been the margins there have been going down a lot. So you just got to kind of pick your margin on, on specialty and, uh, and go from there. Yeah, no, I just, uh, I, I put a lot of my 2024 numbers for them in your model and I, I get even uh, close to uh, their current market cap. Yeah. Anyways, that's, it's another stock. I'll keep it on uh, green plains from here. No, 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 no. I think, look, it's, it's, we talked to them extensively when we were doing our work. Um, they have a good facility, especially that facility in Southern Illinois, right? They're fixing the balance sheet. They sold that plant in California, right? So. Yeah, they sold Madeira and Stockton. So now they've got, yeah, Magic yeah. Valley and yeah, Columbia. Oh, maybe I need to dust off the model. <laughs> so, Kyle, this reminds me of a question I wanted to ask. I mean, green, so Green Plains, you know, they didn't roll up the whole industry, but, you know, they were a roll up at a time. Uh, a couple years down the road, as everybody's potentially pursuing similar paths, is this going to be another roll up story? Um, you know, I understand right now is probably not the time because you're in the middle of a business transformation. Yeah. Will that be an equity story two, three years from now? It's certainly possible. And I'll answer it by talking about something that I, I didn't really put in the deck because the deck was already complex enough. <laughs> so last summer, uh, a company announced a JV with a private ethanol facility, a giant facility called Theraldson where essentially Green Plains and Theraldson were going to split the CapEx to put in a fluid-equipped system, MSC, High Pro, and Cornell system, and split the economics on the back end um, with Green Plains marketing the product and whatnot. You know, one of the issues with something we wrestled with a lot more maybe a year ago than today, one of the issues is when you're making a new product and you go to a large uh, pet food manufacturer, aquaculture um, buyer, they say, okay, you know, how many, you know, rail cars can I buy? How many trains can I load in? And these guys are like, oh, well, yeah, we can give you a truck every, you know, once a once a week or whatnot it, it there's a scale question and so uh industry does need to scale and we think green plains we believe it has the best technology although the lead is not that significant so we don't we're not betting on green plains being a, a consolidator 
of of whatever the high pro products will become but it's certainly jvs and other types of capital infusions into you know because a lot of ethanol plants are owned by you know farmer co-ops and whatnot and for those folks scraping together 40 million dollars might be a heavy lift right so there's definitely if, if you're financial you know does private equity do it? You know, 60% return on invested capital is going to snap people's heads around, right? Like, it's the same thing when we started working on renewable diesel. We're, we're talking to Darling. We're like, guys, we're getting to like 70% return on incremental capital on your projects. And they're just laughing. They're like, yeah. And I'm like, well, then why is the stock at 15? They're like, we don't know. Well, now the stock's not at 15, right? So um, that's kind of how I try to look at the world. So you could have the potential where you're, uh, I, I don't know if these, if these co-ops are ever sellers, um, but you could have the potential where there's a very different perspective on the bid and the ask, right? Because hypothetically the bid is, is uh, you know, is Green Plains who can easily come up with the $40 million and, and, you know, at a, like you said, a 60% return on incremental capital, whereas the ask is a co-op that's seen, you know, five boom and bust cycles. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that's where a partnership model or a joint venture makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we're not, we're not connected in those spaces uh, in terms of, um, you know, knowing all the ethanol and soy players. Right. But, but Green Plains is, they sit in Omaha, they're right in the middle of everything. Right. So um, the reason I didn't put Daryldson in this model is, how do you model it? Right. It's like, uh, it's just, it's too hard. Like, uh, I'll deal with it later. You know, that's another thing that the company I'm, I'm hoping the company will do this year in terms of like breaking out line item by line item, these, these, um, you know, KPIs or metrics. Like a lot of this is, you know, how we think about the business, but it's, you know, unequivocally going to change when green plans puts out their KPIs right now. They're just lumping everything. Like, you know, ethanol cost, revenue, ethanol cost. It's like, okay, that's not helpful. <laughs> so they know they need to do it. They just got so many things going on that they, uh, you know, it's going to take some time. Yeah, it's no, no small task. Uh, I'll make, I'll make one more call for one more call for Q and a, uh, just in case anybody did not get to ask. And at the same time, go ahead, kingdom. Hey, thanks. Uh, one other question on the carbon capture. Um, I know that uh, you mentioned here that Green Plains kind of jumped into this as the, the main partner with Summit. Um, do you have any concerns that they gave away some of their upside getting committed early instead of waiting until the uh, the infrastructure bill came through with the better incentives, especially the you know low or no interest loans for developers? Um, or do you feel like this is still the, the best way for them to set it up? Yeah. So a couple things on carbon. Carbon is, um, especially via the pipeline, is still very much in, in uh, process, right? Like the building of the pipeline, that's easy. Um, but they still have to procure the land, the, the, the uh, you know, through the, uh, through the different areas that are privately owned. They got to they gotta get that going. What? What Green Plains did was agree to be a shipper on the pipeline and ship their carbon, okay? They also have an option to buy 
or uh, uh, you know invest and be an equity owner of and participate in the pipeline itself. Um, there's a data room out there that a lot of folks have been in. We have not been in it. We have not confied with Summit. That's all still going on. Um, and we didn't confide because that was somewhat gray from a public information perspective on Green Plains, in, in our opinion, uh, opinion of council. So the I don't know. I don't know is the answer. I know Green Plains, as, as a shipper of the carbon, tremendous value. Um, that'll be off eight of their plants and then three of their plants sit on direct inject where they get, um, they get, they double dip, right? The, um, the 45 Q and the LCFS, as long as they're selling those products into LCFS markets, which you kind of have to balance your supply and demand in terms of everybody's going to, everybody can't sell into California, right? So the LCFS markets have to come up. COVID has delayed a lot of these by three to four years. I mean, New York was on pace to have uh, a low carbon fuel standard in 2022 pre-COVID and obviously they shelved it with you know politicians have other stuff going on so you know you got to kind of guess at, at the at the development of low carbon fuel standards markets in, in addition to California um, and there's a whole bunch of stuff enumerated in the deck on that but it's common it's just delayed yeah, no, that makes sense. And I'm closer to the uh, CVR partners and Alto side of carbon capture. So I was just trying to understand if they gave away some of their upside by being committed to this project, but not having bought in now that the, the economics have gotten a lot better, or at least look like that's what well, going. Yeah, no, look, I mean, I think, I think um, a lot of value is created if the pipeline gets up, right? But and all, uh, all the plants that Green Plains has that are not on geologic storage are supposed to be connected to Summit. Now, that's relying on Summit getting up, right? So it's sort of, it's sort of a virtuous cycle. And you know, Todd has made some public comments about, you know, they have the option to buy in on equity, but, you know, they haven't made... I, I, I think... I don't know that they've made any decisions. I think... Um, they're still working on it internally. That that was the the public commentary, and I have no private commentary, so I had I haven't been in the summit um, data room. Great, thanks. Go ahead, KNL. Um, just a, I want to dig into. You mentioned the AK and L, we're having trouble hearing you. Could you back up in a second? Can you hear me better now? Much better. Okay. Um, I I want to just pick your brain on um, the biosynthetic side of things and the ability to use technology to move up the um, the, the the value chain. There, um, I, I I joined kind of midway, so I haven't really spent enough time to uh, to go through the whole kind of 136 slides of the presentation that you put together, but um, the the biosynthetic angle certainly uh, piqued my interest, especially like some of the things that I guess I'm wondering are, you know, is there is there like a, a team of, of, of researchers here that are looking to improve the process to help them get to, you know, these higher value products? And, and um, on top of that, you know, uh, there's probably quite a few quality standard um, requirements in order to, to start going into different type of food products. 
And I'm just wondering how we should think about that. Uh, you're absolutely right. Um, that, and it's on slide 41 of the deck. Um, my deck's probably a little bit light um, on, on this topic. Green Plains is, is, quote, partnering with Novozymes. And what that really means is they're a customer of Novozymes in terms of uh, development of different yeasts as yeast. Because the fuel ethanol doesn't care what yeast is used, right? They just want the molecule. That's it. That's all. They, it doesn't matter, right? It goes in a gas tank. It's blended into gasoline. No, no, doesn't matter, right? But the animal nutritionists care on the back end, okay? And so what Novozymes is doing um, is <clears throat> working on different uh, yeast um, catalysts, catalyzers, if you will. It's probably not a word, but, you know, we haven't spoken with Novozymes on that. Again, that's probably close to the gray line of public-private um, information. But there is the ability, what we know from studying this is that the buyers don't they care about crude protein percentage for sure, but they're more focused on amino acids, which Green Plains does not discuss publicly. Not because they're not talk, they don't want to talk about it. It just it's overwhelming to a generalist, right? Like what the hell's amino acid? Like, you know, for a lot of us. So you really got to dig in. But Novozyme certainly understands that, and they're they are working on that. And if you go to the J curve slide that um, that management has in every deck. That's the big, the biggest way you can go up the J curve is increase your total protein percentage, which requires slowing down the entire ethanol plant and running um, the silage through the MSC uh, physical machines uh, longer, right? It's like a, there's like a threshing machine and a screw machine and all these like physical processes, right? So you can run like 5860 Pro but it slows down your plant and it's going to reduce your throughput and it'll definitely affect your ethanol economics because you're not producing, you know, you're not running as much corn, creating as much ethanol. Right. So that's sort of a plant by plant um, decision, but on the Novozyme side, it is, it is a, uh, a biological process. And so if you can, if you can tweak the biology, you can definitely end up with higher value uh, products over time. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what they, um, what they come out with, but, but, you know, for obviously for competitive reasons, they've been um, reticent to really get into the details publicly. So I, uh, there's only so much that I can know as a public investor. I, I guess, you know, how much of that is, um, you know, uh, baked in, you mentioned, I guess, $500 per ton. So some, some level of, uh, you know, protein improvement. Um, you know, again, I haven't spent a lot of time on this, so I'm not even sure if I'm asking, the right question in, in no it's the right it's the right question if if you go to the j curve and for in my deck it's on slide 24 and it's in every deck on the company's website they're already producing at 53 protein so that management gives the number of 500 a ton in their slides what i'm talking about on novozymes and are running um slower running the plant slower you get to 56 pro 60 pro management's numbers are $800 a ton, $1,200 a ton. Um, I don't want to quibble with management publicly. There, there's definitely, when you talk to nutritionists, 
you know, corn gluten meal is a gold standard in, in, in the nutrition markets. And for there are products that are more valuable, like fish meal, chicken meal, which is essentially just whole ground up fish or whole ground up chicken. But those have certain amino acid profiles that are superior to a vegetable-based, corn-based protein. So it gets really specific. And I personally am not ready to underwrite. You know, I'm just looking at the slide. Um, $1,200 a ton as a quote, a fish meal analog. I don't, that hasn't been proven to me in the market now. I've not been privy to those conversations. I'm not saying management is incorrect here. They might have information I don't have, but just from publicly talking to um, aquaculture experts and not um, getting into green plains and the, the, the nature of the product, because again, public private type gray area or that one's pretty black and white right you can't know that so twelve hundred dollars a ton i'm not going to put that in my model but yeah sure like novozymes uh you know 56 pro eight hundred dollars a ton yeah you know it's certainly possible put 800 in <laughs> in the model <laughs> now tell me your EBITDA number right like it, it'll take some time but it, it's definitely um possible do you have a, a sense of, so, you know, let's say the nose is I'm, um, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but technology, um, let's say it works, you know, you, you can get the higher uh, protein levels, maybe even you can get the fish meal analog. Um, what, what sort of splits or licensing would occur there? And, and, and how would you think about kind of other, you know, representative technologies. I mean, I'm sure it's not just no, nose design that's that's working on biosynthetic um, yeah. processes. And, and yeah. you know, it sounds like this team has really the infrastructure to 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 bootstart whatever you know some genius out of the the lab kind of figures out at bench scale. Is that is, is that a, an okay way of thinking about it? Yeah, definitely. The, um, the, the, there's an organization that sort of um, puts a stamp of approval on different um, feed ingredients because it's highly scientific. It, it's called AFCO, A-A-F-C-O. Um, AFCO has designated dried distillers grains and dried distillers grains with solubles. The, the differences are technical and beyond the scope of the space. Happy to talk about it offline. But um, AFCO has not put in ultra high pro protein cornmeal as a as as a product yet, to our knowledge. Um, that is something that they'll need to work on. the The highest and best use is actually aquaculture, um, and those buyers are really sophisticated um, at the amino acid level, and they're going to kind of just do their own work. Uh, Green Plains has a business called Optimal Aquafeed, which is essentially um, a fish food, you know, kind of pilot plant. If you if you go to their um, plant at Shenandoah, and I know dozens of institutional investors who have been there, including me, um, so it's open to everybody. That you know, they're working on on um, these types of, of of products, but I don't think per management commentary that they have a scale aquaculture buyer yet. I think it's coming for, uh, not for sure, but I think it's highly likely that it comes late 22, maybe into 23. It, it, it's certainly a market they're attacking. And, and I think those numbers would easily be more than 500 a, pound, uh, a ton. But I just, again, being, I know I've said conservative a bunch of times, but that's how we try and model it. We, we do think that's a conservative number that, 
you know, the company has a good chance of hitting. So it, it sounds like um, if someone ever figures out a yeast-based technology to uh, get to the higher proteins, um, Green Plains will always be sitting on the infrastructure that could, could help scale that. Um, sure. Yeah, no, I mean, sure. Another ethanol plant or another, you know, um, what, uh, corn wet mill or something could certainly use yeast. I don't, I don't think um, Green Plains is going to be, I don't think this is like a, there's a bunch of patents at FluidQuip, but I don't think the product is going to be some unique product that's like patentable. I think what it is is customizable and tailored to certain customers and for certain applications, right? Like dogs have a different need uh, for amino acids than cats have a different need than horses have a different need than dairy cows have a different need than, you know, um, tilapia versus salmon versus, you know, go on down the road. The, the species level, like it's highly, highly tailored and, and specific. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Okay, so we're coming up on an hour and a half. So, Kyle, I'll just ask you, is there anything that didn't come up that you feel needed to be discussed? Uh, I'll just leave you with, um, in terms of the reduction of carbon intensity, uh, it's not only ethanol at 40 carbon in, uh, carbon intensity it's it's corn oil and renewable diesel and it's the carbon intensity of um of other products i.e renewable uh, dextrose there's an esg angle um we're not um esg focused investors we certainly are aware of esg because it i think esg can create and drive a lot of value well beyond the scope of the spaces but um I think there's an ESG angle where it becomes uh, a must-own ESG stock when people kind of like, quote, quote, unquote, get it in terms of what all these things are. Um, and that's not even in the numbers in my deck either. So, um, you know, potential kicker um, on, on the narrative side. That's great. Well, Kyle, you've been really gracious with your time and to share such a well-thought-out thesis. You know, I often get... DMs from younger investors, and I see some of them on this call, and I would just say, this is how it's done. This was really helpful. You've thought through, you know, you've thought through all the potential pushback to the investment thesis. So I'm really, I'm really honored that, that you chose to come on. So thank you so much. Well, no, Twibs, thank you. I, I don't talk a ton publicly, but I really enjoyed single stock spaces and I hope to, hope to be a, a, a long time participant on, on the other side listening. So I appreciate all you do. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Kyle. And thanks everybody for joining.